Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. It's really a great pleasure and honor to be able to welcome to the campus and to the community two uh, really great friends and two uh, friends of uh, UCSB and of Santa Barbara as well. Robert Thurman is Jay Tsongkhapa Professor of Indo-Tibetan Buddhist Studies in the Department of Religious Studies at Columbia University. And he's also co-founder and president of Tibet House US. At Columbia, Professor Thurman has created one of the most important programs in Tibetan Buddhist studies in the, in the United States, uh, where he has mentored really a whole generation of young scholars. Aside from his work at his own institution, Bob is recognized as one of the great scholars of Tibetan Buddhism, really in the world today. Tibetans use the term Shinta Soche to refer to those great beings who have had a major impact on the introduction of Buddhism into a culture. In the Tibetan tradition, only two individuals are known as Shinta Soche. Those are Nagarjuna and Asanga, who lived in the second and third centuries, uh, respectively. Now, Bob Thurman wasn't around in the second or third century. At least, if he was, he wasn't Bob Thurman back then. I've often thought, however, that if he had been around, that today we would probably have not two, but three Shinta Soches. Because Bob, in my eyes, is one of the great champions of Buddhism, an individual who's had a major impact on the reception of Buddhism, not only in the United States, but really in the world. He is a prolific scholar who has made major contributions to the field of Buddhist studies, among his many important scholarly works, which include translations of such classics as the Vimalakirti Sutra and the Tibetan Book of the Dead. My own personal favorite, of Bob's scholarly works is his study of Tsongkhapa's Lekshing Nyingbo, sometimes um, translated The Essence of Eloquence, which was published by Princeton University Press. Tsongkhapa's work is, I believe, maybe the, the single most important work ever written in Tibet. And Professor Thurman's study of this work is still a landmark uh, in the academic study of Buddhism. Many scholars, and I consider myself in this camp, find it difficult to make the transition to writing for popular audiences and to speaking before popular audiences. Um, so it, it's rare to find a scholar who has successfully mastered both genres, that is the scholarly and the popular. Bob Thurman, however, has done this. Among his many, many books that have reached the hearts and minds of broad audiences, his latest, Why the Dalai Lama Matters, his act of truth as the solution for China, Tibet, and the world is the subject of tonight's conversation. I first met Bob about 30 years ago when he organized a series of workshops on Buddhism in Amherst, where he was teaching at the time. Um, Pico Iyer, I've known, I haven't known as long as I've known Bob, but, but of course, as a part-time resident of Santa Barbara, Pico is known to all of you, having graced the, the campus and the stage uh, many times. Several months ago, I had the pleasure of introducing Pico when he spoke about his then recent book on the Dalai Lama called The Open Road, The Global Journey of the 14th Dalai Lama, 
a wonderful work where Pico reflects on the Dalai Lama's ideas as a religious leader, a politician, a scientist, and as, and as a philosopher. Pico is also, of course, known as a journalist, for example, for Time magazine, uh, but he's also the author of numerous other books like Sun After Dark, The Global Soul, and even the author of novels like Abandon and Cuba and the Night. Reviewers have called his work brilliant, comical, poignant, and a sensual feast of rich impressions. If you haven't caught Pico's article of April 9th in the New York Review of Books, I highly recommend it. It's an insightful analysis of the Dalai Lama's struggles to resolve the Tibet issues, his reflections on the present state of affairs in Chinese-occupied Tibet, and especially it's Pico's personal and I think very moving observations of the Dalai Lama's reactions to what has happened, especially in the past year, and what is happening now in his own homeland of Tibet. Now, I've known the Dalai Lama for about 30 years. Pico Iyer has known him much longer, since the time he was a young boy, in fact. Bob Thurman has likewise known His Holiness for more than 40 years. And he was, Bob was, in fact, the first Westerner to be ordained as a monk by His Holiness. Between our two speakers tonight, it occurred to me at some point that we have just about a century of familiarity with the 14th Dalai Lama, familiarity and friendship. I mean, what an amazing thing. And how amazing that we have this remarkable pair of individuals to speak to us tonight about why the Dalai Lama matters. Bob and Pico, thank you for being with us tonight. And please join me now in welcoming these two great writers, scholars, and friends to the campus and to the Santa Barbara community. I've known Bob for many years since uh, even before Time Magazine in 1997 called him one of the 25 most influential Americans. <laughs> Um, I hope that's embarrassing. Uh, and uh, I think it was a joke, I think. <laughs> What's always really moved me and struck me about uh, Professor Thurman is that he lives and breathes Tibet. And more than that, that I think he's made Tibet and Tibetan Buddhism a living and breathing concern for millions of Americans across generations, <laughs> regardless of their religion or lack of religion. Uh, and as you heard, he was the first Westerner to be ordained a monk by his Holiness the Dalai Lama in 1964. Uh, he shed his robes, but I think somehow by shedding his robes, he's made Tibet a living presence across the globe as he never could have if he were just sitting pouring over his texts. Um, in fact, some of us who know him think he's mastered some ancient Tibetan meditation technique whereby <laughs> he's in 26 different places at once. Um, every time I see him, he's been in Bhutan yesterday, he's in Vancouver tomorrow, he's in New York in the middle, uh, he's, he's setting up a new Tibet house, he's organizing lectures, conferences, concerts on behalf of Tibet. And I think more than anyone else, as Jose was saying, he has helped awaken the whole world to Tibet and its predicament. Um, one piece of housekeeping is that when we're finished here, all of you are invited to ask questions. Please come up to the mic since this is being recorded. And at the end of our session and our questions, uh, Bob and I will be up here signing books and glad uh, to talk to you. Uh, we're very, very lucky to have him here. And just the one final personal thing that I'll say is uh, I have an individual reason for being really glad you're here. Uh, because two years ago, a Rolling Stone magazine for its 40th anniversary, 
decided uh, to conduct interviews with really the 40 defining spirits of our time, the 40 people who had most shaped the world since 1967, Bob Dylan, Mick Jagger, Bill Clinton, Al Gore, and predictably, they chose one of the 40 defining spirits as Professor Thurman. They did? They did. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, I'll have to explain why you didn't know. Um, so I'm embarrassing you further, but enlightening you for once. Um, and kindly enough, they, they actually asked me to conduct the interview. So I gathered thousands of questions. The only drawback was uh, I was in rural Japan, where I live. I think you are orbiting the, the globe at high speed. And they never could bring us together in the same room. So I've got all these questions I've been waiting to inflict oh, on really? you. And now is the moment. Uh, and you are certainly an honorary, one of the 40, 40 <laughs> shaping figures in our globe. Uh, and I think we're going to get on to your book and the situation of the Dalai Lama and of his people and why he's coming to Santa Barbara and what he's going to bring us. But there may be a few people here who've never had the chance to hear His Holiness and don't know very much about him. You know him as well as anyone. And I'd like to ask you, what is it that people most don't know about him? What is it that's least understood or most misunderstood about him? Uh, yes, well, I think that um, what I miss in uh, representations of His Holiness, there's been a film or two, you know, and uh, what I miss about it is the, his intelligence, actually. His, you know, we say wisdom, we, we talk about a Buddhist master, we think of wisdom, people say wisdom, but then I think people think of wisdom as some kind of, you know, like the groundhog who comes up and knows when the spring is coming, you know, some, some sort of intuitive connection to the universe or some vague thing, mystical thing, you know. Mm. Whereas in Buddhism, wisdom means a kind of super knowing uh, through critical investigation of reality and then coming to a really deep understanding of it and knowing really what, how the atoms are moving, you know, what, where the neurons are going, whatever it, whatever it is on the micro or the macro level. And the Dalai Lama really has a very, very highly developed intelligence, and he's one of the great intellectuals of the world, actually. And therefore, his, he always says things like, my religion is kindness, or, you know, you know nonviolence is the only way in the 21st century, and dialogue, and things like that. And people think of them, tend to think of them as some kind of like, you know, like religious platitudes that he's just reciting, uh, you know, because they're written in a book or they're from a scripture. You know, Jesus said so, Buddha said so, or whatever, you know. But actually not. They're actually the product of his deep investigation of the world. In, in fact, from the Tibetan point of view, for many lifetimes. But certainly, even not even invoking that, in this lifetime, he's been, poor guy, has studied like really hard for a long time, and he still does, even today, you know, in the age of 73, he spends hours studying every day, as you know, you know, from being with him. And uh, deep thought and critical thought, and I've seen that because I've known him since he was about 29 and 28, and the 28, 29, and he, um, I've seen that his answers to questions has changed, and he has really grown and developed, and certain questions he, in the early years of our acquaintance, he would he would defer to his own senior teachers, and then later on he would eagerly answer and then give much more than you asked, you know. And so, and his interest in Western science is not just some sort of like show or something, he really is interested in how this and that works, and he goes really deeply into it. So I missed that, you know. Some, I, I consulted on a couple of movies and I kept pushing the producers to, you know, you have to show his intelligence. You have to show, like, what, he, what he's mastered, the difficulty of these texts. Even the mind and life, the science dialogues that he has, I tell the scientists, 
it isn't just that he's calm and nice and peaceful and inspiring, but what did he learn that made him like that? You have to look into that. You know, they, they're reluctant to do that. You know, but, it's, it's but slowly it'll come out. What? It's, hard, it's hard to show on screen, isn't it? Somebody studying and somebody investigating the world as rigorously as That's true, does. that's true, although they could focus on things he says in a certain way and, and, and uh, he could be interviewed in a certain way. He could, someone like you, <laughs> a critical intellectual like you, could ask him, could interview him in, mm. a, in a film, they could get you in to interview him. And then that would then show something, you know. And I think part of that intelligence is in fact in distilling this very high philosophy into these everyday precepts that everyone can remember. Exactly. Uh, which is what the Buddha did, isn't that right? I think so. I think he's the closest thing we have on the planet to a Buddha today, for sure. Mm. Um, and I think when he travels around the world, my sense is that apart from coming to give whatever he can give, he's coming to learn as much as he can. He's got that inexhaustible curiosity. That's right. And he's gathering kind of empirical material with which to refine his understanding of that's life, right. That That's right? right. Well, the Buddha was like that too. You know, the, they, they have the early Pali text society people translated the Buddhist text as the dialogues of the Buddha. Mm. Of course, because they wanted it to assimilate it with Plato, you know, with, with Socrates. But still, it is like Socrates, actually. It's from almost a similar era. And that was the Buddha's approach. Someone would come to the Buddha and say, like, what is this or what is that? And he would say, well, what do you think? Yeah. Sort of like Socrates did, you know, because he was a teacher, really, not an indoctrinator and not a prophet like, dispensing some sort of fixed truth. He was helping people to elicit their own intelligence. Actually, mm -hmm. that was his whole job. A famous thing he said, remember, he said, he said um, mendicants, uh, wise people uh, accept my words after... A critical analysis and experimental investigation and deep reflection, just like a goldsmith buys gold after burning, cutting, and rubbing. And so that's how you should listen to me, not just take out of devotion to me and say, oh, Buddha said, so that's that, you know. Yes. But you critically burn it in the fire of your own experience. You know? yeah. that, that's what he did say. And that's actually one of the only two quotations up in the temple outside the Dalai Lama's house. Do you yeah. that? Oh, it's yes, right that's there. right. Um, so it's one of the principles he cherishes the most. That's right. And yes. I think also, along with that, the fact that, like you probably, he was steeped in debating, in, which yes. means seeing every side of every issue. That's right. And also means understanding how the other thinks. Right. When he looks at the Tibet-China situation, he knows how the Chinese mind is working. That's right. Wouldn't you say? Well, that, yes, I would say that. And uh, we shouldn't misunderstand Tibetan debate and mix it up with uh, normal quarreling or arguing mm -hmm. because Tibetan debate is, um, it, it, even in ancient Indian epistemology, is actually a beautiful thing. The, the syllogism and an inference are, have the same word, anumana. But one is called svartanumana and the other one is parartanumana, meaning uh, an inference for yourself or an inference for another is a syllogism, like an argument. Mm. So debating is, is in, el eliciting the, you know, getting the help of another person's mind to think over some topic. And so the debates were meant for two people to deeply go into something sharing their own thoughts so, you know, so that and it's considered that to develop critical meditation yourself and break through your misunderstandings and come to a deeper understanding you need to get your energy going by debating with another and having them see sides of something that you don't see and then when you individually meditate you you are seeing it from different sides like you can you can have the Devil's advocate, so to speak. You know, first you argue with the devil, <laughs> not you, and then, <laughs> Thank you. and then you get the devil's advocate in your own mind. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yes, yes. And so, it, and they, even the language means that they are the same thing. That's from India, from mm. ancient India. 
and the Tibetans are totally into that. So, so they consider you have to learn something first, then you debate with another, and then you debate in your own mind in meditation, and then you come to a deep breakthrough inside. Mm. It's really wonderful. That's from Dignaga and Dharmakirti, the great Indian philosophers, you know. That His Holiness, you know, as you know, you all may know, Dalai Lama doesn't say he's a member of this or that school of Tibetan Buddhism. He says he's, a, he's an heir of the 17 great pundits of Nalanda. A pundit is really like a professor, you know. It's an ancient Indian professor, you know. Yeah. Although, although they were a little bit more meditative maybe than some of our professors. <laughs> and they probably drank a bit less. <laughs> but, but yeah, I think a lot, one thing people perhaps don't understand is he's as keen a student as a teacher. When you meet him, he wants to listen to you as much yeah, as he yes, wants to talk absolutely. to you. Yeah, um, yes, And you, you, you were mentioning in your earlier answer how he's changed over the years. And I know you've written and you, you've told me how when you knew him in, in first in 63, yes. he was very intelligent, very charming, alert. Mm -hmm. And then the world didn't much know about him then. And he really went deep into his studies and his retreats. And I think you yes. said that when you saw him in the late 70s, yes. he, he was radiant. It was That's as if right. it was a different person. That's right. What, how did that, where does that come from? And well, I think he can give thanks to Henry Kissinger for that. <laughs> because Henry Kissinger, after he and Nixon made the deal with China in 1971 to make an alliance against Russia, I don't think really Kissinger was converting to communism, uh, although he adulated Mao in the most like, like really like revolting manner, like because he loved people of power, you know, old Henry the K, you know, but. Uh, but they made an alliance against Russia, right, from 71. So then they blocked His Holiness's travel to the U.S., which, of course, is the place where he had the greatest, uh, you know, like following and people, you know, listening to him. And uh, so during that time, because he couldn't travel as much, he could go to Europe a little bit, but he couldn't really get to the U.S., uh, he, um, he did, went on long retreats. And he did, he visualized these mandalas and the Kalachakra mandala, these brilliant, marvelous Tibetan methods of expanding your awareness. And I think he really succeeded in some of those things. And therefore, that really explains the change. I think so. Mm. I think so. I mean, after all, a Buddha, what a Buddha is, is a being who is, considers, you know, other beings equal to themselves. To, you know, it's like, a, it's not like me, or, or I don't know about you, or I don't know about any of you, actually. Some of you may be Buddhas. But anybody who thinks they're just the thing inside their skin, and the other people are something other, is not a Buddha, automatically. They can be a nice Bodhisattva or something, nice person, but they're not a Buddha. Because a Buddha is equally sort of, you know, one with all beings. They think they are the other being. So I believe His Holiness has that a little bit, mm. in the sense that, you know, if he was sitting here with you, he would feel he was as much Pico as he was himself. Of course, he wouldn't invade on you and sort of like go, go inert himself and just be you or something, but he would sense everything about you, and that's what makes a great teacher, because he would know what you need to hear, what you're confused about, he would feel it intuitively, you know, because their sort of sense of self-identification is expanded, you know. Like a mother identifies with her child and can feel the appetite of the child or the colic or the little bit tummy pain or whatever it is, mm. a mother is sort of identifies so much with the other being. Mm. So a Buddha does that with everybody, poor guy. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine feeling everybody else's feelings, you know, like empathically. And I think Dalai Lama is like that. But I, I can't judge, of course, being the kind of person I am, I can't really judge. But I think that's what it is. And I think that's what's so uplifting about his presence mm. to other people. Because yeah. normally we're used to meeting each other where 
Like I'm inside my skin, you're inside yours, and then we reach out and shake hands. Hi, hello, Pico. But suddenly you have someone who, who thinks you're as important as they are, really thinks so, feels it. And then you feel like different, you know, because suddenly there's two people being concerned for you, you instead of just yourself, you know. Isn't that a way of understanding it? No, absolutely. And I, and I think actually one of the radical and completely universal things I get from your books, which you've probably got from His Holiness, is the sense that anyone can become a Buddha. Absolutely. Whether she's Catholic or Muslim or atheist or yes. anti-Buddhist. Um, I think so. Not only yeah. can, everyone can from, from, from the Buddhist point of view, but everyone has to. <laughs> Sooner or later. Yeah. It's the next step of evolution, you know, from being a mammal, a human being, you know, is to become a being that really is happy because they really are equally the rest of the other as well as the self, and therefore there's no other to threaten them, and therefore they're completely happy. And why wouldn't we all want to be completely happy? Although, although some people will say, uh, maybe some French intellectuals on the <laughs> left bank, in between Galois and like a glass of cognac, they will say, I, I want to keep my suffering, I want it. Oh, don't take away my suffering. <laughs> Poor my friend Mathieu Ricard, he had to fight all these French intellectuals who yeah. were like, we don't want to hear about this happiness. So he had to, he had to like, write a defense of le bonheur, you know. Uh -huh. It's a beautiful book. I think it's translated in English, uh, Mathieu Ricard's book. It is. Book. In fact, he came and presented it here. Oh, he did? Well, oh, yes, OK. Yes, then yes. you all know all about um, And I, I remember Barbara Walters, that other sage. Oh, um, yes. <laughs> So, she is a great sage. <laughs> she is, and she, she wrote in her memoir that when she wrote, she put together this piece on heaven, and she talked to all... She the, wrote that in her memoir? Uh, yeah, and she went really? to all the wise men yeah. in the world, including His Holiness, yes. and she said what struck her so much about him was, she said, what is your definition of heaven? And she'd got very highfalutin, complicated answers from everyone else. He said, to find happiness. She was instantly disarmed and instantly right. made that human connection. Um, she gave him a big smooch at the end of the interview. Did you see it on TV? <laughs> yes. Well, she requested a smooch, and he said, let's rub noses in Eskimo fashion. So there's, a, there's a beautiful picture of that. Um, I, I know. It was great. Actually, she consulted with me before she went she? there, and yeah. I told her to do this and that with him. But, uh, and she, she was, she's so cute, Barbara. Barbara's very cute. First time I met her, someone introduced us and said, uh, oh, he's very interesting. Professor Thurman, he's really interesting, or something like that. And she looks at me and says, why are you interesting? She said, I said, I didn't say it. Don't ask me, ask him. <laughs> All right, there's one, one question I'm not going to ask you. But, oh, okay. Um, okay. When you were talking about that self and other and the, yes. and the idea of it, yes. How do you think that plays out in his political life when he's thinking about this formidable adversary that is China? Do you think he's, he's using those kind of... Absolutely. Well, I don't think he thinks of them as an adversary. No, that's right. That's actually. Right, yeah. I think, I mean, he, I mean, he knows they are an adversary, actually, mm. and they've been killing his people and crushing him and uh, really being really stupid and destroying themselves, actually, for like 50 years. But he doesn't think of them as an adversary. He thinks of them as people who are confused and deluded and, and vicious because, because unhappy, because miserable. And um, he, he wrote a poem to that effect when he was much younger. His a prayer for the, you know, to Avalokiteshvara to protect the land of snows type of thing, in which he says they're crazed and deluded by wrong ideology and by confusion and by dissatisfaction, and therefore they have been so brutal and violent, but please let them see the light type of thing, you know. And, uh, and he really means that. Mm. You know? And he actually frustrates some of his followers because he doesn't get, like, mad enough with them mm. sort of thing. But... Uh, 
And then he came, came up, he comes up with something, he's a win-win person, therefore. Right. He, he comes up with a view and a plan of how both sides can be satisfied. Mm. Tibetans and the Chinese. And um, this is what he calls his middle way approach to the Tibet-China struggle. And people very much misunderstand it. Uh, some of his own people do, and they get very confused about it, which is why I wrote this book, Why the Dalai Lama Matters, the title of our talk tonight, to try to show that his approach is very powerful mm. and very, very workable, actually. And therefore, it still might not happen for some time. One cannot predict or prophesy when, when people will see the light, you know, which means the light of their own self-interest, you know, their enlightened self-interest. You can't predict that, but it helps to realize that, th th that it would be good for them to do so. Do you know what I mean? Most people think, well, China will never change because they would lose so much if they were nice to Tibet. They're, they're gaining by being vicious and oppressive and imperialistic in Tibet. But actually, they're not. They're losing. And it's, you can rationally prove that, I believe. Mm. But he himself doesn't tend, hasn't tended to put it together that way, like make it like an argument, because mm. he's so deferential. He realizes that people have to come to this understanding themselves. It's like when he will give a talk about compassion or something. Then he will say, well, if you find it useful, that's good. If not, forget about it. Mm. He's sort of like that. So I sort of put it together for him. Mm. And I was very happy that the Tibetans had a congress last fall. Yeah. And in that Congress, and they went into it with a lot of people shouting about, Dalai Lama has ruined everything with this, this wimpy middle way thing. We have to fight for independence and all this kind of thing. But when they actually really reviewed what could be done, they realized that the middle way that he does is the really only effective way. Mm. And it's very effective. Yes. And it's quite powerful. It's not at all a surrender to them. You know? yes. So anyway, so, so I think he's a very skillful statesman. In other words, I wrote this because he's not only a great spiritual teacher, but he's an extremely skillful statesman. Mm. Because the Dalai Lamas have had to be. The, the Lama role in Asian history is that they, they are entrusted with responsibility for their people. You know, every Lama in Tibet, you know, like in Tibet, you couldn't run for sheriff unless you had practice for three lifetimes and could prove it, you know, by passing a reincarnation test. We're not going to have like some wimpy governor just coming in here and being a <laughs> governor. The, the governor would have to prove that. I've been reincarnated three times, and I took care of California well all those times, so re-elect me. And then the Tibetans would vote for them, you know. So only the reincarnations, you know, take care of the land and the, make decisions about the forests. And, the, and since they're going to come back and be reborn in the same place, people feel they'll take care of it in a long-term thing. Mm. It's a very sensible system, actually. And also, they're very political, the reincarnations. The Dalai Lamas have always reincarnated in different states. You know, now in New York, now in Arkansas, now in California. And so then when they get to the White House, so to speak, which is the red and white house, the Potala, then they come from, they represent the different regions, you know, not by electoral system, but by reincarnational system. And they also come from different classes. Mm. Only two Dalai Lamas out of 14 were, were born in upper class families. The others were peasants or nomads. And therefore, they really can represent the people. It's kind of an interesting system, mm. the reincarnation system. And, I mean, we should work it out here, and then you could re-inherit your tenure. <laughs> <laughs> the Dalai Lama said to the president of Colombia that in order to finish translating the entire Buddhist canon into English, which is the mission I was given, thank you, 3,600, I mean, a lot of thousands of books, he said to the president of Colombia, he said, well, Professor Thurman will have to reincarnate 
three times to finish that job. <laughs> and the, and the, the president of Columbia looked nervous at first, and then he relaxed because he realized he wouldn't have to get tenure even if you were reincarnated. <laughs> you wouldn't get your tenure back anyway. You know? <laughs> but in Tibet, they give you your tenure back, you know? Although you have to study like, like hard for, from small age, you know? Mm. Well, and, and people forget, because of his spiritual presence, that he's the longest ru ruling political leader in the world. He's been in charge of his people 69 years. And also yes. people don't know that he spent a whole year in China and he knows, he knows the Chinese leadership intimately. I oh, think yes. He, he knows Chinese history better than most Chinese people do. He, he does, he does. Um, and the, he knows something about Confucius and Chinese Buddhism. He really does, which they do not know. Mm. Although they talk about how they have thousands of years of culture, they weren't educated, unfortunately, because of Mao. You know, they thought everything old was bad, so they don't know the wonderful Confucius and the incredible Zhuangzi and Laozi and all the great Chinese Buddhist leaders and teachers. They don't really know about them. But they will rediscover that. We know that. They will rediscover that. They'll get back into being Chinese and decide they don't want to really be General Motors. <laughs> we have to hope. Imagine if they did. You know, if they all bought as many cars as we have per capita, although now we're going to get rid of a lot of ours, fortunately, but if they had as many cars as we have per capita, there'd be no oxygen on the entire planet. All those cars would burn up all the oxygen on the whole planet. So it wouldn't be a matter of global warming. It would be global suffocation. So we can't, they can't imitate us much further. Except Sorry. they can become Tibetan Buddhists, too. Well, that's, that would be OK, although nobody wants to convert anybody. They can be yeah. Chinese Buddhists, yeah. you know, or yeah. Chinese. And I always say that the pope doesn't have to worry. He can have a couple hundred million Catholics, if you like. If we can get in there to convert them, because there's plenty of extra Chinese, you know, they can do a different religion. <laughs> and Buddhists don't mind Christians. Jesus is like a Buddha, we don't care about him. So, you know, they don't have to all be Buddhists, you know, but there are 700 million Chinese who will be Buddhists when they get free to do so again, which will be quite nice, you know. And my, I have a friend who says that will help Chinese importing of grain and will take the pressure off Iowa because one, the Chinese Buddhists are the best vegetarians among the Buddhists, much better than the Tibetan Buddhists, who are a little bit fond of their yaks in the wrong way. <laughs> and so, so there'll be a lot of more vegetarianism in China if they go back to Buddhism, the Chinese, and then they won't need to import all that corn to feed the pigs. So it'll save their budget really very, very good, be good for their, they'll get another trillion of saved money. Well, well tell us about the, your political solutions that you've outlined here, bringing together all the Dalai Lama's oh, yeah. ideas and ways he comes. Well, did, we, did everybody get the Dalai Lama now so we finished that topic? No, we, we may move back to him. But, uh. <laughs> you tell me, so I'm going to ask you one question. You followed him around and you wrote about the open road and you had a great vision, I think, of the Dalai Lama as really he should be if the Tibetan situation were peaceful. Mm -hmm. where he could be the world's Dalai Lama, not only the Tibetans. I think that was your vision, the way at least I understand it. And can you talk a little bit about your vision in the open road? I would like to hear that. Well, uh, Before we switch to how uh, yeah. I'm solving the world's problems. All right. Um, well, he, he's already become the world's spiritual counselor. And yes. I think the striking thing is when he goes to Colombia, he speaks to 20,000 people, 19,000 of whom are Catholics. Yes. And they get as much from him as, as you or I would. Yes. Uh, and as we were talking before, I think of him as a doctor 
who manages to use his Buddhism to offer basically non-sectarian universal advice, as every doctor does. Right. Um, which is why he's, he always says, you know, don't get distracted by religion, go for the human. Which right. is instantly a way of cutting across the divisions. And you're right, he's, he was a globalist before the times, talking about inter, interdependence and environmentalism in the 70s, right. before we'd heard of globalism. And I think, to me, the reason that I, I wrote that book was, in the 21st century, the world seems more polarized than ever. Yes. People more horrified than ever before by what's being done in the name of religion, first right. through the attacks on our country and then the wars right. on the outside of the world. Right. So here is a Buddhist who, as you were saying earlier today, tells people when he comes to California, don't, don't become a Buddhist. Right. Just, just learn what you can from yeah, me. Don't be crazy like Thurman and get to be a Buddhist. <laughs> be whatever um, you are. Yeah, and, and he calls himself the defender of Islam. He That's delivers right. long lectures on the Gospels. He hangs out mostly enthusiastically with scientists who probably have right. no religion. And so, he went to a Kumbh Mela with the he, Hindus. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's wonderful that he's lived the majority of his life in a Hindu country. So many mm -hmm. of his best friends, like Desmond Tutu and Baklav Havel, are right. Christian. And so I suppose I see him as the Barack Obama of the 20th century, the, the leading the vanguard, and saying, forget about whether the vehicle of society is red or blue. Rewire the engine. doesn't matter. You right. know, all these divisions in these terms are actually creating problems in our head that don't exactly. have to be there. And so, he, as you were saying really before, he never sees the world as us against them. He right. says he only sees us as we. That's right. And when he thinks about the Chinese, he says anything that helps the Tibetans will by definition help the Chinese, and right. anything that harms the Chinese will harm the Tibetans, because right. we're all one body, and right. it's like your right arm and your left arm. It right. doesn't make sense to smash yourself. It doesn't make right. sense for China to hit another right. country that's, whose destiny is intertwined with its own. Right. So, so yeah, I think he, he knew about globalism because he, he calls it universalism, but it's basically, that's the higher life of globalism. It's fabulous. Um, it's, the concept of universal responsibility yeah. is, the, is straight out of the Bodhisattva vow. You know? mm, mm. It's, the messianic, it's the messianic attitude of Buddhists. And although messianic attitude is a sort of dementia from the point of view of Western psychology, that's because Western psychology is materialistic in thinking that people only have the one life. Mm. But in the Buddhist worldview, people are stuck. We're all stuck here for an infinite number of future lives. So we might as well become bodhisattvas. You know, might as well make everybody else happy, right? If you're going to be stuck with them, it means, it means you're living in a groundhog day. <laughs> a Groundhog Day life, and therefore you're going to keep repeating this life until you get it right and you're nice to everybody. And then they're all happy with you, and then you'll really be happy. So, so he, that's his universal responsibility concept. You know? Yes. So he is Avalokiteshvara teaching that to the world in a way, which is really without, without imposing religion on them, mm. his religion on them. Mm. Right. And, and, also, and also saying wonderfully in his last book, I lost my home and therefore I gained the whole world as my home. And, and he really right. lives it because I think every country on earth is keen to claim him as one That's of theirs, right. as, as a member of their The family. only country, and even I think the people of China, if they were free to say, yeah. I'm sure that they would really be in love with him. When he went to Taiwan a couple of times, the Taiwanese people went completely berserk. Mm. And he was even embarrassed. They were made throne for him. It was like... like 20 yards high in this kind of thing in some big stadium. And he was like, I don't want to sit on that thing. And they said, no, no, you're Kuan Yin. We want Kuan Yin. <laughs> and uh, Li Danghui, who was Christian, you know, the, the president at that time, when he had his biggest visit in Taiwan, held hands on TV with him for 20 minutes. Mm. 
was sitting there holding his hand and clutching onto his hand, of course, looking for the Buddhist boat, naturally. <laughs> no doubt. But I think he also might have enjoyed holding his hand. He's a, he's a nice hand to hold, the dialogue. Very nice, yes. He is nice. Um, he, when he holds my hand, he, like, look, he gets all weirded out by the hair on the back of my hand. <laughs> he says, you're like a monkey, he says. They don't have much body hair, you know? <laughs> so he's fascinated by the hair, and he pulls at it. Oh, yes. It's, does he do that to you? Well, you have a little bit of hair on your wrist. Yeah. Does he pluck at your hair? <laughs> no, but I've noticed he can't see a male ponytail without tugging it or beard. <laughs> oh, beards. Yeah. He's terrible on yeah. beards. I'm desperately trying to grow a beard to get tugged, but it's, it won't grow. I don't no, know why. he'll be on your hand again, I think. Um, That's right. <laughs> but uh, tell me, I mean, before we turn to your book, since you, you did yes, say, yes. Um, what do you think his main priorities are at this point in his life? The Dalai Lama? Yeah. Well, you know, he always says, I have three major missions in life. He says, as a Buddhist monk, I have to be a good Buddhist. And so I really love studying and teaching Buddhism and uh, encouraging others to work on it, you know, who are Buddhists and so on. And he's definitely kept alive the Tibetan Buddhism in exile in a beautiful manner amongst his own people. Mm. And these monks down there are really, there's a, I mean, it's like a renaissance in the enlightenment levels of all the different Buddhist monks, I do think. And uh, so that's his first thing. And then the second thing is to promote great understanding among the world religions, to improve that because he's, he's been, long before we had the phenomena at the end of last century, that freaked out all the sociologists who were expecting the withering away of religions, you know, mm. the secularists, when all the fundamentalists came roaring back, not only in America, but everywhere, in every tradition. Uh, and religion reasserted its claim in the public sphere and in the political sphere, even, in all countries, you know. Uh, he had, been, 20 years before that, he'd been saying, modern thing, or everybody is interrelated, pluralism is here, no, religion should not be trying to convert each other and forcefully, you know, dominating. We can't, because crusades are too dangerous, you know, and fundamentalism of that type is too dangerous. We have to not do that. And he'd been saying that for a long time. So he, that's, I think that's a major priority for him, mm -hmm. is continuing the interfaith, but not just interfaith, because, you know, in Buddhism is not just faith. Mm -hmm. Buddhism is also science, so therefore his dialogues with science are part yes, yeah. of, like, awakening the world, because the world awakens through science. You only get liberated through science in Buddhism, not through belief and faith. You can feel a little better through faith, but you won't get liberation that way. Only by understanding the world can you find liberation. That, that is the Buddha's teaching. So that, that's kind of boring, you know, as far as a religious prophet goes. The religious prophet, the Buddha didn't run out and say, believe me and you'll be saved. He did not. He said, criticize me and you'll be saved. Don't listen to me just because you think I'm a cute Buddha. You know, listen because what I say makes sense. Measure it in your mind, you know, and then use it, you know. Otherwise, someone else will be cuter and come along and they'll teach you some idiotic thing and you'll, you'll vote for that person because <laughs> you think they're cute. So never go by cuteness. Go by your reason, you know, not by faith. That's always been the Buddha's thing. So science, so therefore, Dalai Lama's interest in science, people think it's also fantastic and amazing, but it's natural for Buddhism because wisdom means knowledge of reality, and only by the knowledge of reality will you become happy and free of suffering. Mm. That's the Buddha's teaching. So, so Buddha was an educator, unfortunately. You know, he would have been at home here at UCSB because here, you, you know, you don't go and say, I believe in biology 101. You have to study it. <laughs> you know, you believe in it won't help, you know, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so that's the way it is about Buddhism. So what was the question? Well, oh. uh, three, those are the three priorities. I think that was the second. Oh, yeah, third one. And then the third one, yes, because he's a Tibetan and because Tibetan people are under genocidal yeah. threat and yeah. genocidal practice mm -hmm. even, 
not just, he says cultural genocide to be polite, but it's actual genocide. It, and it's not really China's, it's not anything personal <laughs> in a funny way. It's not a personal genocide. Mm. It has to do with the Chinese policy, ideology, and propaganda. Because they have to claim, they keep claiming, we've always owned Tibet. You know, Tibet is an inalienable part of China. They go on and on with this thing, which is like a propaganda claim. Meanwhile, the living disproof of that is any Tibetan <laughs> who they don't know Chinese, they never heard of Confucius, they don't, they don't identify themselves as Chinese, they never have, they have treaties and stone carvings from thousands of years ago. China will stay on that side and Tibet on this side and then we'll both be happy. And so the existence of the Tibetans disproves that propaganda and it proves that they only invaded Tibet in 1950 and didn't live there before that. And the new world order of 1947 with the founding of the UN means you don't invade other people's property. You are not allowed to keep it. The only way you can get something is through a plebiscite. You can't, you know, Saddam Hussein could not keep Kuwait, etc. And nobody gets to keep what they invade. You know, the, that's the whole point of deciding not to have any more world wars, that the, that the world lives under this idea. You know, some people maybe don't like it, but that is the idea of the world. So in order to try to skip that, they have to pretend they always owned Tibet, and since they didn't, they have to eradicate the Tibetans and their culture, or somehow assimilate them into being Chinese. In order, so therefore, they, they're forced to do genocide to maintain their propaganda, if you follow me. It's like they don't even want to, but they do, you know. So it, because of that, the Dalai Lama's third major thing is to liberate his people, yeah. to free, the, free his people. And now this, this is then goes to, this segues into the book, you know, why the Dalai Lama, maybe we should put those slides up. They said they had a slide thing. I don't know where it would be. I don't see a screen. But the guys back there, the guys back there can choose, show some slides because it might be useful because now our task is, because what I try to do in this book, and the task is... It's a Buddhist image. Oh, Take there. away the obscuration Whoa. and radiance. The task is that we, you, you must give up this idea that it's a hopeless cause and that Tibet will never be free, and that the Dalai Lama is naive, and that the Pentagon is realistic. That's all. That's all you have to do. <laughs> you know, it's the, war it sucks. You know, and I recommend Jonathan Schell, who, who, not writing from the basis of Buddhism. Jonathan Schell wrote a book called The Unconquerable World, Power, Nonviolence, and the Will of the People is the subtitle, S-C-H-E-L-L. And he begins with von Clausewitz. I don't know if you happen to get these. It's really worth it. You got to get, read that book when you get back to Japan. It's really worth reading. And he starts with von Clausewitz, the theory of war. And von Clausewitz's theory of war, of course, is that war is an extension of diplomacy. When you can't get a deal with your neighbor and you want them to do something, you defeat their army, and then the people will do what you want. That's the whole thing. But, you know, and therefore it doesn't work now. In those days, 95% of casualty in war were the soldiers. Mm. But now, 95% of the casualties are civilians. You know, you have shock and awe and civilian bombing and all this kind of thing. And so therefore, you kill people's grandmothers and their daughters and their brothers and sisters with some bomb, you know, collateral damage, they call it. Mm. And then you got a terrorist who's going to find a n nuclear weapon or germ warfare or something, and he's going to come and blow up your city. Mm. So nobody's going to win these wars. You're not going to get the people to do what you want. And, and therefore, they're fruitless. And if people have not noticed since Vietnam, since World War II, nobody's been winning any wars, mm. right? Yeah. They've been losing them. And in an odd way, the Chinese are losing the war of Tibet. As Mao said, they would. Mao predicted. Mm. Mao said when the Dalai Lama escaped in yeah, 1959, so. he said, well, we won the battle. We crushed them in Lhasa, the uprising. We crushed them all over Tibet. 
But he told Deng Xiaoping, who was in charge of the taking over Tibet, he said, we've lost the war because Dalai Lama escaped. Because mm. Mao knew how the Dalai Lama would develop, I think. He's had a sense of it. Do you think that they sense, and part of their fear and extremism and paranoia is that the Dalai Lama has precisely the kind of power, inner, invisible, and moral, that they can't begin to match with all that? It's the power of truth. You know, yeah. that's my, his act of truth yeah. as the solution for China, Tibet, and the world. The, the act of truth is an Indian concept, you know, satya karma, you know, mm. and it means, and there's a famous story, I think, about a courtesan who, who something, and, and someone, she was accused of something in front of Emperor Ashoka or something like, I can't remember the exact details, and she said, I didn't, I'm innocent of that, and if I, if it's true that I am innocent, may the Ganges flow backward, and in Patna there, mm. and it did flow backward, mm. you know, and, the, and there's this idea that truth will move the mountain sooner or later, you know, <laughs> although it may take time. And so the Dalai Lama's truth is, Tibet is Tibet, and it's not China. The Tibetan people are not evil. It was not a place of darkness and slavery and all this kind of thing. I mean, it was an imperfect country too, like every other one. But it has its very special good points, and it has its, it has its own right to freedom, actually, even though he's willing to give it to the Chinese through a plebiscite if they would rep repair the damage they've caused and if they would let the Tibetans be themselves in Tibet, he, mm. which is an incredible, that's an incredible thing to do, you know, unbelievable, you know, and this is not, this is, let's go, oh, I have a thing, aha, is this it? Yeah. Oh, there he is. <laughs> Look at that face, he's just leaving the stage there and he's just giving a talk. And he said, if you think it's nonsense what I had to say, then forget about it. <laughs> look, that's his look. He's really in good health now. Wait, which, oh, this one? Ah, no. Oh, yeah. People often ask, what is the big deal about Tibet? Well, take a look. That is a, you know, satellite picture of Asia, of Eurasia. And it's a, exaggerated for the altitude only. But that, means, but that part you see there, that's the Himalayan wall, and that's over between two and three miles of altitude. And look at the size of it. And it's the source of all the rivers of Asia that nourish the lives of almost four billion people. 3.7 billion people, I think, is the number. So what's the big deal about it? It is a really big deal. <laughs> But it is it, one of the essences of it as a pristine, as the water tower of Asia, somebody had this expression, I think is very good. As the water tower of Asia, it has always been sparsely populated. If it could be colonized by Chinese or Indians or whoever, they have lots of extra people down there in those river valleys. It would have had hundreds of millions of people in it. Look at the size of it. But it only had six million Tibetans. Maybe there were 15 million back when they were an empire, you know, conquering empire. But now, because of monasticism, it has only had only six million recently. But uh, that's all that can really live up there. You can't plow it, no waving fields of grain, you know, that's the great tragedy, you know. Mao said when he first invaded in the 50s, he said he would have 100 million people there by the 1960. And of course, he, he didn't have hardly any by then. But now Deng, the big colonization has taken place by Deng, starting in 1993, when the Soviet Union broke up and he was frightened he would lose it. That's really why they're doing this futile colonization now, you know, which will not work. So anyway, take a look at that. And, and the 80% of the glaciers in Tibet have already melted, 
not only because of global warming, but because of the mishandling of the Tibetan environment by the Chinese colonization, the deforestation in the east, and the desertification in the a little bit further west in the grassland where they have tried to commercialize grazing, you know, to get more wool and to get more meat and this kind of thing. And they fenced land and things instead of nomad nomadizing, which keeps saves the grass. And they don't really go for yaks. And they are the only ones who can live on that step very well as the yaks because they don't chew the grass. They, they lick it. So it's, I mean, it's, it's a very simple thing. And China's own scientists know that they are destroying that environment and they are raising the temperature by making big population centers and by desertifying and deforesting. And they are ruining the water tower of Asia, which ruins all of India, the Ganges, the Brahmaputra, the Indus Valley, that's Pakistan as well, the Mekong, the Irrawaddy, the Salween, and the, the Yangtze, the Yellow River, all of them, they're, getting, they're going to dry up in the non-monsoon season. And that will defeat China's own environment, which, of course, they already have very much wrecked. Okay, so, so um, I wanna, I'm not going to show everything. This is just a more political one, but it shows. But look at the size of it. Two-thirds two the size of what? Western Europe. Two-thirds the size of Western Europe, isn't that right? Yeah. Isn't that no, it is the size of Western is it? Europe. It's oh. bigger than, it's, oh. it's the size of the whole U.S. west of the Mississippi. Mm -hmm. It's almost a million square miles, the plateau, that is. Now, the Tibet Autonomous Region is only about two-fifths of the plateau, because when the Chinese invaded, in 1950, 49, 50, 51, they never dreamed that the allies who were blocking them in Korea, you know, the UN at that same time, and India, who had a mission in Tibet inherited from the British, and the British, who knew that Tibet was a separate country, they never dreamed that they'd let them go and take central Tibet and be all down the thousand miles of the Indian border and, and breathing down Nepal's neck and Bhutan and Sikkim. They never dreamed that Nehru would be so silly and the British and all of them would be foolish. They, they, didn't, they didn't. So what they did was they divided three-fifths of Tibet into other Chinese states. And I'll show you a map of that. Uh, okay, 10 points of hope. This is so you're going to hope why we should never give up. Okay? Never give up. That means. First one. Well, I don't know if I want to go through this whole thing because I don't think we have time. And, I mean, I can do it at a very high speed, but... This is just a general statement. Why don't, why don't you synopsize what Yeah, let me synopsize, but if, I want to show the yeah. maps is what I want to show. But let me synopsize the 10 oh. points. 10 points of hope are that um, it's appendix of the book. But it just means that we really can't give up any of these lost causes. I think actually there's a great TV show on PBS, started last Monday. I missed it, but it's called We Are Remaining or something. It's about the native people here. Mm. You know, the Chinese often say to us in the Tibet movement, whenever we debate some Chinese, they say, well, you killed all your Indians. Why can't we kill our Tibetans? After, after they first pretend, well, there's nothing to discuss. It's just China. And then when you say, no, you guys invaded, then they say, well, you invaded and took America from the Indians. You're going to give it back to them, then we'll give Tibet back to the Tibetans, which is kind of an admission that they invaded it. And then we say, well, that was 100 years ago. We didn't personally do that, and we don't approve of it now. And we're going to have to give some things back to them, yes. And here and there, like Canada gave back Nunavut, you know, we gave back parts of Alaska. The Black Hills we owe big time gold, and uh, we have a lot of contracts that we have, we have reneged on, you know, on the Indians. And we, there's a lot of giving back we're going to do here, actually, before we're going to be happy as Americans, believe me. But they say we shall remain or we are remaining. There's something like that about the native people. Mm. And that's a fact. And so we, we have to live with that. 
Anyway, this is uh, this, uh, that's more general, but I want to get back to Tibet. Okay, there's Mount Kailash. It's just a nice picture. <laughs> and then back to the ten point. Here's the next. Hope won't die. Here's the next point. You know, this is and this is an important one for us. Come on, we live in a Protestant ethic-dominated society. That means we're only happy when we're miserable. <laughs> and I am just like that. I'm like the mis most miserable person, and, and I only feel good when I'm miserable. Because then I'm rushing to get, get non-miserable, and then as soon as I get somewhere, then I'll be miserable about the next thing. So that's the way we achieve, you know, that's our industrial revolution. The Protestant ethic, Max Weber talked about it. But Buddha doesn't agree with that. Buddha says, you, as a human being, you have the capacity to be truly happy. All you have to do is understand where you, what reality of yourself and your life and you will be. And then you'll be nicer to others when you're happy, actually. And while you're miserable, you're only going to wreck the planet and, and make bad waves with your friends. So Buddhism is, truly speaking, the art of happiness, as the Dalai Lama's book and him and Howard Cutler wrote. And uh, this is an important point for us because we are all used to our misery. You know, that's why we, we have such a big Prozac budget. Now, this, these are the Tibetan, this is just showing Tibetan culture, these happy people. They make a thing like that and they drop it from a mountainside once a year because they feel that the Buddha is there. And this is just a ratifying of the, the icon, is just the fact that they feel that Buddha is there. It's like, you know, we have post-dispensationalists and we have millennialists and we have all these people in the fundamentalist movement here in America now. And they're all like waiting for Jesus. They thought Jesus would come when Bush bombed Baghdad, you know. And they, they go, go for it, George, because if you bomb Baghdad enough, Jesus will come back, you know. They, they have this whole crazy thing about rebuilding the temple of David and then Jesus will come back and then they have plans for the Jews after that. <laughs> I mean, they're really cuckoo. But my point about it is, my point about it is, is that imagine how people would behave if they thought Jesus was here. You know, Jesus was in the White House. Jesus was like, what is this Jesus to go bomb Baghdad? He didn't say bomb your enemy. He said, love your enemy, you know, just like Dalai Lama does. So people would behave a certain way. Tibetans live, that's the way, the nature of Tibetan culture since the 15th century. Not always, mm. but since the 15th century, they feel that the Buddha... In other words, that energy of providing us humans with the ultimate opportunity, moment to moment, to realize our full evolutionary potential is here with us. It isn't like we could have been enlightened if we met Buddha thousands of years ago, and now since we can't meet him, we're going to be nasty and conquer Iraq, and then later we'll meet Buddha when we die and he'll save us, because we'll repent. <laughs> it's not like that. It's like right now we're going to behave like someone who doesn't invade other countries and who, who has repented and who's, who's going to be nice to our neighbors. So that's really important. Okay, never mind this. This is all, true, all useful, but, you know, my definition of civilization. I want to get to the pictures. Isn't that cute, sweet? There he is. This man's name was Jakob Sverdrup. And I flatter myself that uh, I wrote him letters nominating letters for four years in a row, a single space, five, six pages, and I promised two more pages every year if they didn't get him off the short list. <laughs> and he was getting older and tired of reading my letters. So they finally gave him the thing. No, not really. They gave it because Tiananmen Square occurred and the Norwegian foreign minister could no longer protest. But he wanted to give Dalai Lama the Nobel Peace Prize for already three years by that time, before that. He did. Because that's when the demonstrations began in 87. What? Uh, the demonstrations began in, in Lhasa in 87, right? And that's when 
His Holiness was extending the hand of peace and friendship. That's right. That's right. That was part of it. Um, but he was nominated even '86 before mm -hmm. that because of his, his. He's always held out that he didn't want violence and he wanted peace. And even you have to dialogue with this enemy who's killing you and so on. He'd always done that. But then, yeah, he made the. He spoke to the U.S. Congress with his yeah. five-point peace plan. Yeah in uh, responding to the Chinese five-point white thing in, in 1987. Yes. And, but then 89, this was given in 89, and, um, and uh, it was so sweet. Look, look at expression. Look at that. A peace medal made by the inventor of dynamite. <laughs> <laughs> and this is this time, peace, never mind. Okay, never mind that. You can read that in the book. Where's the next picture? Uh, this is, these are Tibetans doing liberation yoga, <laughs> which is they, they bow over thousands of miles to indicate their connection to nature, to their devotion to enlightenment. These are simple, uneducated people, lay people. They're not monks, so they can't learn and do meditation, but this is their way of connecting to the earth. And he, they've, they've done this, you know, prostrating and standing up and prostrating all the way from eastern Tibet. They're here at Mount Kailash, actually. They're circumambulating Mount Kailash. And it's a really marvelous thing. This is, how they, this is how they fight for peace. If someone invades your country, you go and bow all over every inch of it. <laughs> and, like, and they're really quite happy. It look, he's looking a little intense there because it's hot. <laughs> but he's happy. No, that guy is really happy. You, you all, he stops for tea and chats with you, and he's like totally happy. And over here, there's three or four Chinese you know, like public security bureau policemen, and they're looking miserable. And they're frightened of him, actually. Because he has a different feeling, his heart, and the way he's connected to the earth and the air and the world is totally different. One thing, can I, can I go back to the Nobel Prize for a minute? Yes, yes, sure. I mean, just by chance, as you remember, the, His Holiness was in California when he was awarded the Nobel Prize. That's right. And I went to see him the day after he'd awarded, he'd yes. received it. He was in Orange County talking to scientists. Yes. The minute he saw me, he took me into a room and tried to find a chair in which I would be comfortable. As yes. if I was a, yes. And then he just looked at me like this, and he said, I've won all this money. What should I do with it? <laughs> and he was clearly waiting for an answer. I was barely out of my 20s. I didn't know Did you make any recommendation? No, but somebody good did. And I think a lot of people don't know that ultimately... He gave some of his money to Mother Teresa, some of his money to Africa for the starving, and some of his money to Costa Rica for, to set up a university for peace. But having won all this money, he instantly was thinking globally and said, well, yeah. I give it everywhere well, outside. But don't you know there was one other thing that I thought was really amazing that he gave. Mm -hmm. He saved about 150 out of, it was only 660 at that time. Yeah. Which, of course, in today's dollars is probably like half a trillion, you know, the way they printed the money. But it was 660,000. And he only saved about 150 for the, the, founda the uh, foundation of universal responsibility mm. in Delhi that he, that he has. But he gave a lot of money to the Lepers Children's School in Lucknow run by the Gandhi Foundation. Did you know that? You didn't know I that? I didn't know that, no. He no. did. Ah. And that was, everyone was astounded by that. Well, where did that come from? Well, he said, well, I visited there and I really liked them. And I, and I really felt about the lepers. And I asked him... I then learned years later that the first incarnation of the Dalai Lama in Tibet, whose name was Dromdamba, who was not recognized as a Dalai Lama, so he's not counted mm. as the first Dalai Lama. He lived in the uh, 11th century, and he was the disciple of Atisha, the great Bengali master, and he was a layman, actually. But he founded the Karampa order that was, the Dal that was then morphed into, after Dzongkhapa to the Galupa order, with Dalai Lama's order, main, main order. He's all the orders, but his main order. 
And that guy, there was a lot of leprosy in Tibet at that time, and Dromdamba practiced what they call give and take meditation. You give your happiness and health and well-being to others, and you meditate taking on their suffering and their ill health and so forth. And he did this in the context of the lepers, and healed enormous numbers of lepers, actually, in the, supposedly in his biography, it said, in that time. And eventually caught leprosy, actually, himself, and died of it. Mm. But he was old, so, I mean, he lived his life. But it was leprosy that did kill him, mm. which he had been absorbing, sort of, you know, meditationally. And he actually didn't got the actual whatever it was. And, and I asked the Dalai Lama if that was in his mind, and he said, no, no, I wasn't thinking of that. But, but obviously, somehow, that, that was coming through from that previous life, I think. Uh, that's beautiful. Which was not 14 lives ago, it was like 30 lives ago, you know, uh. because they, those weren't counted. The Dramdamba life was not counted in the, in the list of Dalai Lamas, but it's, it's written in his biography, but it's not, it's not the number 40, up to 14. That only starts in the 14, 15th century. Isn't that something? No, I, have, I actually have, we only have 10 minutes oh. more for this, and I have three burning questions. Okay, okay, but I, okay, good. Yeah, what are the three burning questions? Do you want me all three at once, or? Yeah, sure. All right. Um, <laughs> one by one. One by one, better. Yes. Um, first is, the, the, the key challenge before all of, all of us, all these years, is how to make freedom in Tibet attractive to the Chinese government. And yes. I think you have a lot of ideas in this book yes. that I'd like you to share with us. That's what I'm trying to get it. to here. All right. Ooh. <laughs> That's a Tibetan. The pandas live in Tibet, by the way. That is in ethnic Tibet where the pandas are. I, w I wanted to show this thing. I'll get to that. Never mind that. One of those stars is the Tibet, by the way, but they don't want to be on that flag. The big fat star is the Chinese people. Those are the Tibetans, Manchurians, Mongolians, and Uyghur people, the four little stars. And they would each four, one of them like to get off that flag, <laughs> trust me. <laughs> but on the other hand, the Chinese could make it where they'd want to stay on it mm. if they were nice to them instead of trying to get rid of them. Okay, this is, the, this is your question. Yep. Okay, and there are the two guys. Look at them. Ah, so cute, little guy with his suit holding up his nose, <laughs> torch. And this Pelosi, you know, this is... Oh dear, there's our guy like that. <laughs> and uh, we're not better than anybody. Okay, this is now, this is, what, this is the answer that, the, that okay. it says. Now what China, what the Dalai Lama asked the Chinese to do is first he wants to reunite, reunite all his people. He can't make a deal with them for the people in the Tibet Autonomous Region because only one third of the Tibetans live in that Autonomous Region. Two-thirds of them live in what I was trying to show you on a map. Maybe it's after this, I, I forget. Uh, I want to show you on a map, which is uh, these provinces that they broke off, and they say the Tibet Autonomous Region of this and that state, Qinghai, Gansu, Sichuan, and Yunnan, those four Chinese provinces. And, but they're called still Tibet Autonomous Regions, but they're just not the, the Tibet Autonomous Region. So all they have to do is administratively reconnect them. And then they all report to Lhasa instead of reporting to Chengdu or Xining or something. The officials there. It's really a, just a bureaucratic thing. Very easy for the Chinese to do that. They say, like, oh, he's taking our territory. But he's not taking their territory. He just wants to make a unit where all his people live. And then they can, then they can do the, what he, they are going to do, which I'll show you what that means. That he needs that. Because they're all on this. And it's easy to define. They're all over two and a half miles in altitude. And therefore, nobody who's born at sea level can live there healthily in the future. They cannot. Second, this is what Hong Kong has. That's not killing anybody. Hong Kong is still doing business. They're enriching China. They're perfectly happy. They might 
pique the vanity of some Chinese leader now and then by some democratic person in Hong Kong saying something, but it's perfectly viable, Hong Kong as one country, two system. And they, that's, they need that for Tibet because they have to manage their own economy and their own environment because the other Chinese are wrecking it by the way they're mismanaging it. That's all. Three, reassign the Chinese settlers and the soldiers who are repressing Tibet. I misprint, I'm sorry, not soldiers. And uh, that's easy to do because China's own scientists say that a, that a low altitude person who tries to live at two or three miles altitude after a year or two gets heart disease, CMS, chronic mountain sickness. And the ladies also miscarry because they cannot gestate. The placenta will not form with the 40% less oxygen, no, 60% less oxygen than at sea level. The Tibetans can do it because they have a special chemistry of a high production of nitric oxide genetically produced in their lung areas. And that nitric oxide, unfortunately, is not nitrous oxide. I'm very much unhappy with that. <laughs> it's nitric oxide. But anyway, it spreads the oxygen in a certain way. So this is not such a drastic thing. They're wasting money. It costs 35 times the amount of money that it takes to make a workstation for someone in Shenzhen or on the Chinese seacoast to make a workstation for a Chinese immigrant in Tibet. It's a huge waste of money. And then they have to ship that thing out, and one dinky little train is not going to do the job. It isn't. The dinky train is only for the Dalai Lama to get on it when he's in Lhasa to go down to Beijing to teach the Dharma to the Chinese. That's what the train, and for us to go and have a tourist, you know, a, a Dharma tourist, and not have to stay more than a few weeks or a few months because we'll get sick if we stay at that altitude. You can't live like that. Even the Bolivians do not have this chemistry that the Tibetans have. So then they mend relations with the Chinese. This is what he's asked for, the Dalai Lama. And then prioritize the environmental issue because they have wrecked the Tibetan environment and he has to repair it. So this is all he's asking them for. He's not asking for independence. He's asking for a reunit, let, let the autonomous region be that, have a one country, two systems, which means real autonomy, get rid of the colonists and the internal oppressive soldiers. He says you can leave the soldiers on the frontier to guard against the invasion of the Indian yogis <laughs> that they're so terrified of, while coming up there in their dhotis to invade the holy land of Tibet. And the Chinese soldiers better defend against that. And uh, otherwise, who's going to invade Tibet? I mean, it's silly. You know, the Indians are not going to invade Tibet. But anyway, they want to have someone on the border. And it's very easy, in other words, all of these things to do. Very easy. And to be friends with the Dalai Lama? Everybody enjoys being friends with the Dalai Lama. They're having a painful time being an enemy of the Dalai Lama. And running around saying, he's a devil and a sheep's and a wolf and has horns. And I don't know what all. And you know, you've had him here sitting here. He's perfectly cheerful. You're going to see him next week. He's Mr. Cute. There's a wonderful picture of him in San Francisco. There was a penguin who was freaking out and snapping at his trainer and everybody. And the Dalai Lama started petting the penguin. The penguin was cool. <laughs> so he can even like relax with the penguins. I mean, it's solely a waste of time making an enemy out of a person like that. You know? and, and I think one, one of the things, the really good things you say in this book is if the Chinese government had a really good PR person, they would say, you have everything to gain by exactly. giving Tibet freedom, nothing to lose. They're exactly. as small as Idaho is in the exactly. US. Exactly. So wait, let me show you. This right. is okay. five things that they're right. supposed to do. Now, what will the Dalai Lama do for them? Come on, come on. Next. Oh, yeah, this I just want to show. Because they make it. Henry Kissinger told me, well, Bob, they're really being preposterous. They're asking for two-fifths of China's territory and all this. Because the million square mile of Tibet is about a third, a little less than a third of China's territory. So you see those, those numbered things there? 
those are these autonomous regions of these other states that they'd subdivided. But they're all Tibet, and that's where the Tibetans have always lived, and they're over 12,500 or 13,000 feet. So it's really easy, and there's no big population concentrations of Chinese there, and they can't plant or grow anything. They can mine, but they can make mining deals with their autonomous government of the province of Tibet. It's no problem. Their Tibetans are wanting to make money. They're going to do mining with them, but they'll make it be green. So this just shows you that it's very realistic what he's asking. It's not hard for the Chinese. If you talk to a Chinese, they'll say, oh, he's asking impossible things we can't do. But it's not true. It's easy to do. It's only realistic for them to do it. Now, uh, yeah, that's just a nice lady up there on the high plateau with her nitric oxide. And there's a nice leopard. I want to get to the five things. Come on, I don't want any more hope here. Hold on. I want the five things the Dalai Lama here. OK, because this is answering your question. Yeah. That's the Tibetan flag, by the way, one of the cutest flags. And I might add, 50 years older than the Chi People's Republic of China's flag. 1916, it dates from this flag. And actually, the lion part holding up the jewel dates from the 8th century. It's an old war banner of the thing. But now it's in a Buddhist context, so it's peaceful. But that's, that, that, that is the Tibetan banner of the Tibetan Empire of 1,000 years earlier. So it's much older than the PRC flag. So first, he's going to tour Tibet and cheer up the Tibetans. <laughs> and that's great. But I, I used to have a recurring dream of going to Tibet with His Holiness. And I'm sure Pico Iyer was in that dream, but I don't remember. I'm sorry, because it was a crowd of people. And we were going in a dirigible, and we were coming from Ulaanbaatar, from Mongolia. It was a giant dirigible, like the, you know, the Zeppelin, huge. And there was a big deck outside the, all the staterooms. And His Holiness would go on that deck and was floating down over all the Tibetan villages. And everywhere he would go, he would anchor, and they would dance and sing and with joy. And it was like unbelievable. It was an incredible dream I used to have a lot. I haven't lately. But that isn't because I gave up. It's just I don't know. I'm getting too old or something. But, but it, it was such a joy that will be in Tibet when Dalai Lama can go there. But he can never go there until those settlers and the police have gone, the Chinese police. There'll be Tibetan police, security, you know. But they can't have the Han Chinese police there because when the Tibetans see him, this energy will like, flip out. It's like Jesus being there. They'll go berserk. And the Chinese are afraid of that type of personal energy from the Tibetans. They feel threatened. They're all much more like, mm, like this, you know, because the poor things have been beaten up for 100 years, you know, by the communists and by before that the nationalists. And so they're like, they're like all like they have the emotional plague, what Wilhelm Reich calls the emotional plague. They're all stiff and tight. So when the Tibetans are going, oh, you know, and, and, and falling on their face in front of Dalai Lama, they think there's a riot or something, and they're frightened. Oh. And then they'll suppress them, and then there'll be a terrible, terrible problem. That's why Dalai Lama had to leave in 59, because Tibetan people were afraid Chinese would harm him. So when he goes back, it has to be open, just Tibetans there. And although the Chinese can drive him, you know, they can say, we're inviting him back. But they can't be there pressing, you know, doing the crowd control. The Tibetans themselves have to do the crowd control. And then there'll be totally a bunch of happy Tibetans. There'll be no more problem about the, the unhappy Tibetans. Second, he will restore Tibetan culture. And he will reward China's leaders. And this is my outrageous thing in my book. He will nominate whoever it is for a Nobel Peace Prize. Mm. And the Norwegians will give it. Tutu will join and Mandela, all of them, if the Chinese change policy and they don't stay the course and they behave rationally and kindly and friendlily, they'll, they'll get Nobel Prizes, all sorts of rewards, you know. Then 
you know, this is just a slogan that, that Hu Jintao always says, you know, increase national unity, awaken spiritual well-being. Oh, they don't say spiritual well-being, but anyway, they say increase national unity and harmony, they call it, yeah. social harmony, things like that. They don't say spiritual. But this will happen because, of course, then the Tibetans will be all right about being part of China because they'll be happy they'll have their lamas there and there won't be a bunch of Chinese living on their land and living in their house. It's like Rhode Island and Virginia or New York in making the union. They would never would have joined New York and Virginia and Massachusetts and Connecticut if the people from those other states said, well, yes, you have to join a union with us, and now we're all going to come live in Rhode Island. They, they wouldn't like that, and they would never have the union. You know, they got something out of the union is the point, and the Tibetans will get something out of it. And, of course, spiritual well-being will be a renaissance of Buddhism in China someday, and Tibetan Buddhism will be a kindling factor, and the Dalai Lama personally, and all the other great lamas, and his reincarnation, you know. He can outlast them. Then, then this is a very key one. China will get legitimacy in its sovereignty in Tibet only this way. They will never get it because they invaded and occupied, and they are telling people by propaganda that they've always been there, which is nothing but a lie. And it's easily known by everybody that there was no Chinese living in Tibet before 1950. It's simply a fact. Not one. There were some soldiers stationed, Manchurian soldiers or somebody here and there, you know, for, for a tour of duty, lamenting being up in this high land and feeling sick. But no one actually lived there permanently. Absolutely not. Over 12,000 feet. Nobody lived there. So, but the point is, the Dalai Lama has promised them that he will then hold a plebiscite with his one country, two systems, his local government, and then the, he will campaign for the Tibetans to vote to be part of China. And other people who are independence freaks and so forth say, can vote against that. And they can campaign against the Dalai Lama. But anybody knows the Tibetan people and the Dalai Lama, no one can defeat. The Dalai Lama is Barack Obama of Tibet. No one will defeat the Dalai Lama's campaign in a Tibetan plebiscite. Absolutely not. And the Tibetans are also sensible and they realize they might as well join, even if it's a free plebiscite. And I definitely want Jimmy Carter to go monitor it. <laughs> That's, you know, definitely. And if they'll be free and it'll be fair plebiscite, and they will definitely vote to join China. So then China will actually have sovereignty in Tibet legitimately, although the Tibetans could always withdraw that if the Chinese then renege on their things and come in and invade and colonize and wreck the place. But when they leave the Tibetans alone in Tibet, Tibetans will join China, absolutely. So he'd give the entire Tibetan plateau to the Chinese, which would be the most historic thing. These people come in there, they invade you, they sit on top of you for 60 years, they kill 1.2 million of your people, they suppress your religion, they drive you into exile, they make a lot of propaganda, and they block your visa to go have fun with Desmond Tutu, which he loves to do. I don't know if you've ever seen them together, but it is a huge tickling match. It's an unbelievable bunch of, like, it's like teenagers. They really are unbelievable, the two of them. Right, you see right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that's a major thing that China gets out of this deal. And then, and then worldwide, China is like a big shot now. You know, China has been catered to by corporations and, and diplomats, the whole world of illusion of like international fake industrial global corporate diplomacy because everyone has been hoping to make a big bundle of money in China or out of China. But now China's going to be making everybody's money. They're going to be eating everybody's lunch, as Michael Milken might say. And so they're going to need goodwill of people. They're not going to just get it because people hope to gain from them, because they are going to be making the money. So who would be a better goodwill ambassador in the next decade or two for China 
but the universally beloved Dalai Lama going everywhere, you know? Don't no, you think? I do, but unfortunately, I was told to um, wrap up this oh, part for okay. recording reasons. Five well, this, are, this ago, is the answer to your question. Well, yeah, I have two, okay. two five points. Five points. Two burning questions with yes. one sentence answer for each, and then everyone has lots of questions. Okay. More, I think one is many of us know how Barack Obama, whom you were just mentioning, yes. took the oath of inauguration with yes. a, a scarf from the Dalai Lama in his pocket. That's right. Do you see hope in his being able to resolve the situation? And and my other question is, what can all of us do? to help Tibet and to help the holiness. What's the role of what? Uh, what can we all do <coughs> okay. to help? <coughs> well, I think Barak, Barak is the blessing of God, you know, fortunately, Baraka. That, that's the meaning. That's the, the meaning word. of yeah. the word. Yeah. And that is him, I think. He mm. came from nowhere, sort of, as far as we yeah. knew. <coughs> and he's turning this disaster. I mean, we've all been predicting that the industrial, out of control, industrial polluting machine, militaristic machine, <coughs> is going off a cliff, like lemmings off a cliff. And now it's sort of happened before they've completely wrecked the entire place. Although actually China has very much wrecked its own environment in its supposed miraculous 15% growth. There are studies that 10% GDP growth in China means 15% environmental self-destruction. You know, all those electric power plants, coal, fire, dirty coal, and I mean, unbelievable stuff, you know. Poison milk, I mean, chemicals thrown here and there. Computers disassembled and the parts thrown in the, in the river and given to the fish and then eating the fish fillet. I mean, it's just unbelievable. So, so we've known that. And Barack Obama came to do that. So I'm sure he will understand when he has time, he's like having to, you know, he's like in the middle of a, of a, of a hailstorm at the moment. But when he has time, he will understand that, you know, this whole thing about how Asia is going to be very important. But the, the greatest thing of the century is the meeting in Asia and world global meeting between the yellow people and the white people. I mean, let's be realistic. That's the great thing. And, and, and that includes the Russians and the Europeans, not just not just the Americans. And if China continues on the path of imitating Western imperialism, which is what they are currently doing, then there will be conflict, and it will be a conflict that no one will win, and it will be a disaster for the world, a complete disaster. And so therefore, I mean, all they have is nationalism as an ideal now, and sort of virulent competition and hatred of America, you know, as a symbol of sort of the world that supposedly oppressed them, you know. Uh, that, that they use that, the communist leaders. The real thing is the communist leaders are actually afraid of their own people and afraid of sharing power and having a multi-party system and going the way of Russia and Eastern Europe and the only sensible way to go, you know. And so they're trying to hang on to this sort of like narrow control and power, which is not viable in the 21st century. It simply won't work. So therefore, Obama will realize that the very best place to get them to start a turnaround, the Chinese, is the Tibet issue. And not only that, but the, but the environmental thing, their own Chinese environment will be ruined if they are allowed to continue to ruin Tibet. And not to say, mention the Southeast Asia and India. And India will have to wake up. You know, China threatens them to invade Arunachal Pradesh and take this huge strip of land you know, away from them, which the, India has had since the British in the 1914, since the Simla Convention. And that, that's unacceptable, you know. And then, I mean, it's just, and then Pakistan is a failed state, and they're the allies of China, and China gives them all this nuclear stuff. I mean, it's a nightmare if it goes on like this. And uh, Obama and Hillary will have to realize this. 
and they will have to deal with it. And therefore, the Tibet thing, they, so I'm afraid that our diplomats have seen, although they like the Dalai Lama and they respond to his popularity and the people here, they find it awkward and, you know, they like, oh yeah, but Tibet is a big thing in our relation to China, but therefore we don't want it to like erupt and make a problem in our relation because our relation is so important. But the point is, what kind of relationship is it? You can't relate to people who are going to behave like the guy in North Korea. <laughs> and the guy in North Korea is just a symptom of the Chinese themselves. Not the people, but that government. Because that guy in North Korea would disappear in five minutes like Ceausescu or Honegger, if the Chinese didn't support him. The Burmese generals would disappear in 10 minutes if the Chinese didn't support them. The Dafur guy, Bashir, would disappear in 10 minutes if the Chinese didn't support them. The Chinese are trying to support the complete lunatic Mugabe. You know? And, and so it's, that is like the, the absolute nexus of this thing that the thing that cannot be brought over into the 21st century, from the 20th century, which is sort of dictatorial, tyrannical, military industrialization, I call it like industrial savagery, you know, mm. industrial militarism. It, it, it's just, it can't last, you know. The Pentagon even can't last here, we know that, but they still have a read, they pretend they're defending us against I don't know, a couple of weird guys in a Bernoulli living over there in Pakistan-occupied Kashmir. I don't know. But yet they're the ones who gave the nuclear weapons to the Pakistanis, which could be taken in two minutes if, uh, if, if, uh, if, if we continue in this military. If we don't figure out a way of getting along with the Muslims, and the whole of Pakistan will become a nuclear-armed enemy state, not just some few terrorists. You know? But the way we've mismanaged up to now, and we better wake up. Yeah. I hope Richard Holbrook will help people wake up about that. So, so I think Obama can't fail to realize that, that's one. Now what we can do, what we can do is what we're doing tonight. Stop being hopeless and thinking it's all a lost cause and it's all a big disaster and nothing we can do about it. We had a conference with His Holiness in 1997 in the Bill Graham Civic Auditorium in San Francisco where we had like a, in the plenaries four or five thousand people. We had 85 inner city working people. We had 1,100 youth at risk from all over California and actually other cities, Denver, Seattle, Portland, other places. And the Dalai Lama was there, Jose Ramos Horta and Rigoberto Menchu's sister because Rigoberto Menchu got sick. And the amazing thing about that thing was it really illustrated Jesus' brilliant statement that the meek shall inherit the earth, actually. It was amazing. Because in that group, because it was a thing called uh, peacemaking, the power of nonviolence was the name of the, of the conference. It was a four-day conference. And in sort of dealing with the violence issues in the inner city, in the family, inside the person's own mind, we couldn't get out to the international level. We didn't have enough funds to increase. We had originally planned a conference like that. We couldn't do it. But we did enough areas of it of showing the power of nonviolence as opposed to violence. But the weaker a person seemed to be, like a ghetto worker dealing in like South Central, like all freaked out, you know, supposedly. But the weaker the situation, the more dynamic that person was, and the more empowered to do something about it because they had to. And the more people were coming from Marin, from gated communities, <laughs> coming down in their BMW and worrying about where to park, you know, 
because there are some like vagrant people in that area. You know, Willie Brown was letting them be around there. You know, that, that's the city hall in San Francisco. The more people actually had power, and they were like, you know, middle class or upper middle class wealthy, the more powerless they felt. Mm. And nothing we can do, you know. It's inner city, oh no, like, will I be mugged by the youth at risk in the conference? Will the Dalai Lama protect me? And the, and the more flipped out they were when they would hear from the people who, like, learned to read in reform school or something, who were not discouraged and who refused to be discouraged, although they were totally under the gun. So, so, so the point is, we get comfortable, and then we look out and say, oh, it's hopeless, and then this condones our own lack of activism, because the nothing that we do will help. This is why, until Barack, 50% of our electorate didn't vote in this country, and that's why we've had such terrible government for the last 40 years. This has ruined the world and our country. Because 50% of us didn't vote. We say we get the government we deserve, and we did, but we never could have been taken over by a minority of religious fanatics if it wasn't that 50% didn't vote, because they were only 22%. Do you know what I mean? The Falwell, I mean, the crazies, you know, the, the, the Limbaugh's. It's some kind of cheese. Isn't it Limbaugh cheese? Limbaugh? Some kind of really stinky cheese, I think, you know. Where they're crazily talking really crazy stuff. And, and, but the point is, what we can do about it is learn about the situation realistically, read Pico's book, read my book, read the Dalai Lama's book, come to our evening, which you did, and then don't indulge in how it's hopeless and realize that it's hopeful. And then look to see what you personally can do, what you can give, what you can think. But the first thing is to learn something yourself. To don't come on with this like, oh, nothing can be done. Oh, Barack is going to fail. Oh, the bank will crash. You know, I'll put some gold under my bed and hide in my gated community. <laughs> and then you're not going to hide. There's no hiding. It's, the, the pollution comes from China. My friend told me uh, uh, today that 7% or 17% of pollution comes to California from China. Because why? But the poor Chinese, they don't do that. Chinese like to go out and double dig gardens and they have like delicious vegetables and they and they like really cute the Chinese and they like burn little red paper and they go pray to Buddha and they have great monks and Zen masters. That's Chinese. They're just imitating Western industrial insane behavior. But of course, we, what did we show them the last eight years? Invading Iraq, invading here and there, troops in 172 countries when we don't have any schools at home, you know, what, what are we doing, you know? So they're imitating us, you know? And, uh, and we have no right to be, and we who are middle class and educated and whatever we are, I'm only a professor, so I'm a proletarian, <laughs> by Marx's own definition, a mere salary work worker. But anyway, middle class people, bourgeois people, we have power to do something. We can help Tibet. You can, you know, don't make donations to Tibet House. <laughs> We need more members. <laughs> My wife always tells me I never bring it up. And she's so annoyed because she runs the place, you know, and she <laughs> looks at the bottom line and you just yak, 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 and then you never mention. Join Tibet House. We need a lot of members. I think there's three or four hundred people here. We really need members. It's very cheap and, you know, you get discounts on books and things. <laughs> and you get to know about this and that. And to join the, the political ones if that's your, if that's your bent and carry a sign and protest and light a candle. In Germany, 
Every March 10th, which is Tibetan Independence Day, or they call it Uprising Day, I call it Independence Day, on March 10th, 988 German city halls raised the Tibetan flag in honor of the Tibetan people. 908, this is like Dusseldorf, Munich, and all little kind of, you know, dwarfs and borfs, you know, they have bergs and dorfs. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? They raised that flag, you know. No, no wonder the Chinese are terrified of Angela Merkel. <laughs> we have a saying in the Tibet world, but which I won't repeat, actually. <laughs> it's, a little, it's a little bit raunchy. You know, Tibet would be, we would be men of Tibet if the war of the world leaders were, were like German women with cojones, you know. <laughs> Angela Merkel. Remember, she brought the Dalai Lama to the chancellery yeah. and practically her own party revolted against her and the foreign minister, was, Frisch Steinmeier, was freaking out. And the German businessmen were worried, you know. She, she still wanted to see her Dalai Lama. Every politician should have a visit with their Dalai Lama, you know. Poor guy, he's got to go everywhere. Sarkozy was cute. Now we're worried about the French. They've, they've signed some deal with Chinese. Now, Maybe, why should Chinese you know, exercise its sovereignty over our sovereignty about who we can give a visa to or who South Africa can give a visa to? What is that? What is that? What's the matter with people? It's not going to help them. It's not going to help China. You know, China has to realize it's not going to be able to propagandize the world like it does its own people. Yeah. It doesn't control the world media. It never will. Come on. You know? and they're not even happy behaving like that. Now, I think lots of you have questions. Okay, we questions, have, questions. We have okay. 12 minutes. Sorry. Uh, so please. My wife is come not here to the, tell me to shut up. So people have to do it. <laughs> okay. I always think about the Tibetan Chinese uh, situation from a from a karmic perspective. Yes. And I wonder, uh, from your understanding of Buddhism, how do you think karma plays the karma plays into that, into this equation? Uh, right. China, Tibet, violence, and so forth. Uh, well, that's a that's a good question. Uh, karma means just cause and effect. You realize karma is not some sort of abstract fate, and. Uh, the, the Dalai Lama, the way karma is used by Buddhists is that when something bad happens to you, you reflect that it was your fault of something you did in a previous life. And so, but it's kind of, that's kind of an individual matter because people who are Chinese in this life might have been Tibetans in previous lives, and people who are Tibetans in this life might have been Chinese in previous lives. So you can't necessarily equate that with nations. But when it happens to you, you know, the blame the victim, Actually, if you, something bad happens to you and you blame yourself, you, you, you're the victim, but you blame yourself, this empowers you. It's very paradoxical and takes a bit of thinking. When something bad happens to somebody else, you never blame them. You never say, oh, that's their karma. And Buddhists don't. That's a mistake. You could. People, it's like saying it's God's will or something. It's a silly thing to do. But, but Bodhisattva, especially Buddhists who have a little bit the Bodhisattva attitude, do not do that. Because you don't want, you, if something bad happens to somebody else, you want it rather to happen to you. You don't want it to happen to them. So you never use karma as a way to rationalize bad things happening to other people. But you do use karma, the idea of cause and effect, to rationalize it happening to you. And why does it empower you to blame yourself? It's a very strange idea. Because you can do something about yourself. That's why. If you shake your fist at God, or you blame the government, or you blame some other people, what are you going to do with them? Do you know what I mean? You can't, 
if you harm them, then you're getting more negative karma yourself. You can't change them. They've harmed you. You can't sit and be angry with them because if they hurt you once, then you get angry they're hurting yourself twice. So whereas if you blame yourself and say something about me, I attracted this misfortune. So I'm going to use this misfortune to make sure that whatever it is about me that attracts misfortune, I, clen I cleanse it, I transform it, I don't gain it anymore. And it gives you real power to take yourself in hand and use even adversity as a circumstance or a cause for development and evolution. You know? It's a brilliant thing, actually. You know? It's like, I take it upon myself, okay? You want to you beat me? I must have done something myself. I'm going to become immune to being beaten. Do you know what I mean? It's a really weird one. It's a weird idea. And people don't understand it. And they say, oh, it's karma, you know, it's their karma. And they think that you, you use karma to dismiss other people's suffering, which a Buddhist never does at all. They don't. They say that we don't want them to have that suffering. Maybe it's their karma, but we want to take it away from them, that karma. We want to become a Buddha to free them from that. So they don't rationalize it like that. So these kind of things that people say, Oh, it's great for the world. The Chinese invaded Tibet, and then Dalai Lama came out here, and we got to hear the Dharma, and all the Buddhist Lamas came, and it's really wonderful. I'm sorry. You know, if the Chinese hadn't invaded Tibet, or, or the world had said no to them when they started to invade Tibet, like we did in Korea, then the Tibetans could have, like, modernized without being genocided. They could have gotten an airplane and a visa. Dalai Lama would have come to visit here on a Tibetan passport. It would, and then he could go back to Tibet, and he could have visited China on the path. It would be fine. You know, we, can't, we don't need to justify these things in that way, you know. It would have been better not to have such a thing happen. But the Dalai Lama's people, they think, okay, we had a bad karma. I personally, when I suffer this, not the Tibetan people as a whole, but I personally must have done such and such. So now I'm paying the price, and I'm going to use this to develop. And the Dalai Lama will tell you that he's actually grateful to Mao and grateful to the Chinese for himself personally, because by being broken out of a system that was, had isolated him too much from his people and from reality, where he was kind of a prisoner in a golden cage, you know, he was able to really take Buddhism to heart in a new way, and he was able to really understand many things that he might have not understood so deeply in his life. He says, I mean, he's supposed to be reincarnation and therefore understand it all ab origine, but, but he says that anyway. So personally, but that doesn't mean he thanks them for harming the other Tibetans. Or he doesn't want to resist or oppose that. So, you know, Tibet, this is the great thing about Buddhism. It's not simplistic. It's nuanced. And even enlightenment, I define enlightenment as high degree of tolerance of cognitive dissonance. <laughs> the ability to embrace paradox and ambiguity and not like just collapse into, oh, this is so, and that dogma, and that, that mindless, or there is no mind, or everything is like mysterious, and we can't understand it. That's all nonsense, and that is not Buddhism. Buddhism is understanding things to such a degree of refinement and so carefully and so, and so precisely that you can see the ambiguity in things. And you can bear that ambiguity and you can even enjoy it, actually. And that's what it is. Don't you think? Yeah. I mean, okay. Yeah. <laughs> huh? What? No, a, a karma is not powerlessness, it's power, basically. Yeah, karma is just cause and effect is all it means. Mm. I translate it as evolution. Jose will be scandalized. Other translators are a bit scandalized because people think... The Darwin owns that word, <laughs> but he doesn't. Darwin's version of evolution has, gives it a certain set of connotations, and his has a brilliant theory, but I'm sorry. Buddha was 2,400 years ahead of Darwin in realizing that 
you know, the human being is connected to the monkeys and this and that, and you know, that there's such a thing as this kind of genetic interconnectedness, that the whole karma theory is a, is a biological theory that predates Darwin, and it's actually more Darwinian than Darwin, because not only were our genes the genes of a monkey, but we personally were a bunch of monkeys. <laughs> and we will be monkeys again if we just spend this life monkeying around. <laughs> Definitely. So we should really be, really be human. Now that we've got the opportunity to be human, we should really make the most of it and become enlightened humans. Be bodhisattvas and buddhas. Why not? Darwin didn't miss that because Darwin was scared of the soul. Because, you know, I don't blame him. The church people were burning people at the stake and behaving badly. I mean, not in his time so much, but they still were burning witches here and there, even in Darwin's time. And they were being crazy. So, you know, you don't want to have a soul because then the church will come and burn you or freak you out. So they, the scientists went overboard on the Richard Dawkins bandwagon, you know, <laughs> in Darwin's time. But, but so he didn't want to have, he didn't want to be personally involved in evolution. You know, from the, from the sort of spiritual, what we call in Buddhism, the spiritual gene. He didn't want to have the third gene, mother's gene, father's gene, and your own gene, you know. Which is, which you're, which, so your own involvement, deep embeddedness in evolution and nature, which we all are totally interconnected in nature. There's not one tiny element of any of us that is not completely involved in nature, and therefore we better bloody well take care of nature. Because you're not going to get out of it. There's no getting out of it. You said today, in the article in Santa Barbara News Press, that His Holiness would try to live to be 103 years old. He said he can, if need be, but he would prefer not be. to have to. Yes. So, but he said, man, I had to stay myself to help him till I'm 107. Right. That, which I that's would prefer true. not to be. But I prefer to get a new body. The cheapest way to rejuvenate is to die and be reborn. And find a nice mom like yourself. Right. But wonder if that does not happen. What? Wonder if he is not able to accomplish that. Well, he says he is able to accomplish that, and why shouldn't I take him at his word? But I don't think he'll have to. There'll be a change in the China business very soon. Thank you. Trust me. It will happen. You heard it here. Remember that no one could have said in the, in the early 90s or late 80s that the Soviet Union would revert back to just being Russia, a Russian Federation, and that apartheid would, would give over to, that would declare would give the government to Mandela. Nobody would have predicted these things. So we've seen miracles in our lifetime. Nobody would have predicted that Obama was going to win the presidency in this benighted country of ours. Bunch of militaristic lunatics. War forever. We're McCain was ready to go back and win the Vietnam War. I was afraid it's going to reinvade the Hanoi Hilton. I mean, come on, you know. I mean, really. Do you know what I mean? Poor John McCain. But I mean, that was too crazy. I mean, and P Palin. Oh, I don't know. She was going to reinvade Alaska or like Kamchatka. <laughs> Tell those Russians to shoo. Remember, she would see the Russians out the window and say, shoo, 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 go back, shoo. My question is, has he mm, shared with you and illuminated his plan in um, that he lives either a long life until um, he sees this vision through of his of the Tibetan people liberated and such that you spoke on and um, an alternate plan because it has concerned me how the Chinese people captured the Panchen Lama, appointed someone right. else as I understand. So what happens 
whenever His Holiness does transition? Well, you know, the, this whole business about the Chinese pretending they're going to find the next Dalai Lama and all this sort of thing is kind of a little bit overblown because this Dalai Lama is not going anywhere. He, had, he was mentioning quite a lot about how he's old and he wants to retire and he, because he's trying to get the Tibetans to be less dependent on him. His whole constitution has to do with the Dalai Lama not having political power in the future once Tibet is regained and they have the one country, two systems. If, if, if the Chinese accede to his request and see the light of this, uh, of this plan that he has offered them, you know, which I, I mean, the plan, I didn't just make this up. I took these different elements from his speeches. And you'll see in this book, I quote all his speeches, the ones that give these points. And uh, so he was saying that, that about him passing on to, uh, to, for, to forestall the paranoia about the Chinese and play another one, and to get the Tibetans to take more responsibility. But, but on, my, on this encouragement of mentioning his longer life, because he's feeling better nowadays, He's also wanting to encourage the Chinese to make a move now because it, there's no point waiting for him to die because he can last as long as necessary. Okay. And, the, and Hu Jintao is only there until 2012 as supreme leader. And then, and then there's a new person, and that will be the fifth generation. And most of the Chinese intellectuals I know expect the Chinese Gorbachev basically to come in this fifth generation of leadership, which will be the next one beginning in 2012. But I don't want to wait for them. I would really, and neither does His Holiness, I would really presume that who should be the one to do it? I call it pulling a Nixon. Because who has been very vicious and nasty to the Tibetans, and right now he's supporting a party boss in Tibet who's incredibly vicious and nasty. Jiang Jingli is his name. And he's really, may he be reassigned to Siberia or the Chinese equivalent. And actually, Tibet is the Chinese equivalent of Siberia. So may he not be reassigned there, may he be assigned to real Siberia. And uh, uh, Jiang Xingli, and he's doing, he's like a cultural revolutionary, like, you know, like burning pictures of the Dalai Lama and smashing temples and defrocking monks. He's really being a pain in the neck. And Hu Jintao is supporting him. So Hu Jintao can say to the other members of the Politburo that he is tough on Tibet, and he has a history of killing them and being very tough against them. So he, therefore, could be the one with the strength to say, well, that's not working, though, to actually face reality and say, this is not working. And so now I'm going to befriend them and see if that works. You know, if befriending them doesn't work, we can always go in and trample them again. We have like a billion people and a two million person standing army. So we can always do that, but let's try, let's try doing it the Dalai Lama's way, you know, and, so, and the switch over, you know, and he has the strength to do that because he's, not, he's a right winger. He's the equivalent of a right winger, you know, who? So I would prefer that, but if not, there'll be another regime in uh, 2012 and something could happen there. So don't worry about Dalai Lama. But meanwhile, there are other great Lamas developing who will be very powerful and very respected by the Tibetan people and very respected by people internationally. And I think the Dalai Lama prefers that there be several of them representing the different orders of Tibetan Buddhism. The young Karmapa, the Ling Rinpoche of the Gelugpas, some young Sakyapa, some young uh, Nyingmapa. There are various people who would be able to fill this role. Very learned and very excellent, very charismatic and very intelligent and very well spoken in all languages. And they will serve as a regency group I think, and the Tibetans will, even though Dalai Lama says, well, they, maybe if they don't want another Dalai Lama, never mind, I'll go study. I'll be reincarnated somewhere and go study. Or I'll be a woman, you know. He says, I'll be a woman and go live in, in Brooklyn. Or something. Whatever, he says many things. <laughs> but, but, but the point is, or Japan, maybe I'll go to, go to Japan and, like, and, do, and practice uh, mountain Zen, you know. 
but uh, he, that whatever he, he says, the Tibetans will make a huge fuss to find him. He has stated he will definitely be reborn in exile and not under the control of the PRC government if they haven't made a deal by the time he's gone. And then the Tibetans will bring him up and he will reemerge as a great Dalai Lama, the 15th Dalai Lama. The prediction is there will be 17 of them, actually. And the 14th one will return to Tibet in some sort of triumph. And then there will be 17. There is an ancient prediction. I mean, there are various predictions, but that is one prediction that I particularly like. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay, so that's, you needn't worry about that. Okay. Too much. Okay? Final uh, question. Thank question. you. Okay, final question. Um, my team, yes, ma'am. Yes. Yes, are you able to provide... Uh, please, near the mic. I, I lost my hearing aid in the airplane. Are you able to provide access to young people and people who can't afford... Um, $20 to see you so that we can get young people involved in the dialogue um, because all these people here seem like they're really aware of these things but the young people really need to have you know in high school and college this kind of dialogue so that they can get in this uh, well yeah I mean the young people can find um, they can go to like my website, they can go to YouTube, of course they can find a lot of negative propaganda on these places as well, but they can find His Holiness on, I think, YouTube even, I think. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, yeah he's there. Many, many. And there's a lot of, the Dalai Lama has a website, www.dalalama.com, and he has his speeches and things like that. So people, I get often letters from high school students and things who are writing a paper on Tibet or on the Dalai Lama. So I think knowledge of that is filtering down. And the Dalai Lama met a whole bunch of children in Seattle, I think, in a big stadium. And he does it whenever people arrange that. You know, he has no power to go arrange it, you know. But he does. And, uh, you know, after, uh, Mr., uh, after uh, our beloved Obama goes and takes away some of the money from some of the, like, F-99s, the unnecessary weird raptors and, and dinosauric machinery, and puts it into the school system again, and the young people are better educated, maybe they will also encounter these ideas about peace and whatever. So we'll count on Obama for doing that. We'll count on him doing that, okay? Uh, so thank yeah. you for speaking up for that. Uh, yes, Pico? Uh, yes. Um, sorry. Sorry. Yes? Yeah, I mean, just, just from my point of view, I'm going to be speaking to some high school students here in Santa Barbara three weeks from now. But I think the most important thing is his holiness would jump with delight at your question because as Bob knows better than I, his biggest priority when he comes into a town, the people he most wants to see are kids. And I travel around with him in, across Japan every year for a week or so in November. And I remember two years ago, he arrived in Tokyo. He didn't see a single person from the government. He didn't take interviews with the media. He didn't meet any power brokers. He devoted the whole day to visiting two high schools. That's good. Um, last year, when he was in Japan, he went to little girls' school in a tiny town that even Japanese hadn't heard of. And he said, this is the future. These are the people exactly. who are going to make revolution, if not before 2012, very exactly. soon. And they have much more power than my generation, he always says. Uh, and, the, and the other really touching thing is that when he meets school children, he spent so much time listening to them. Uh, I remember I was on a st next to him on a stage last five months ago in Fukuoka, Japan, and a young woman, 13 years old, came up and delivered an essay. And he listened and listened listened, and then he gathered all the students who asked questions together and he hugged them on stage. And then the next day, he was in the Tokyo Dome, biggest arena in Tokyo, speaking to 6,000 people, and all his examples came from that little girl. So he was, uh, just as you were saying, he sees everyone as equal and he t treats a 13-year-old girl as his teacher and is as eager as, as is possible um, to see them. I just want to thank you so much for your generosity, oh, well, your spirit, your energy, well, thank you, your Thank you, Thank you, too. Thank you. I want to just add, if I can, thank you so much.
I wanted to add a funny thing, though. In California, it made me think of a funny thing that you'll really appreciate. When we had that conference up in San Francisco, His Holiness was precisely talking to the youth at risk, who were all crowded around very happily at that point. And he was telling them, we're really depending on you, and you're the energy of the future, and you know, going on and on. We were like, oh, we're almost done for, blah, blah, blah. He's going on and on like that. And then, and they were really liking it, everybody liked it. And then Jean Shinoda Bolin, who's a wonderful writer and psychologist and so forth, who was in the, on the panel on that particular session. We used to have like a certain number of people. And then she piped up after he finished that, and she said, well, that's really great, Your Holiness, and I totally agree with you, but there is another source of energy to sort of save the world that you may be overlooking or underestimating. So His Holiness looked at her, and he, he liked her a lot. He'd met her already in previous conversations. He said, oh, what is that? And she said, menopausal zest. <laughs> <laughs> and His Holiness was going to Jimba. What is that? What is that? <laughs> I really like that one. Since now I'm having male menopause, I really like that. Well, on that note, anyone who wants book signed, we're up here. <laughs> Thank you all. Thank you very Thank much. You. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.